welcome to the newest episode in Dialogue Topics. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. This season, we've been talking about the history of LDS scholarship on specific themes, exploring a topic in depth to consider how Dialogue has been a forum for these important issues since its founding. We've also been bringing you up to date on these comprehensive collections of annotated scholarship, which can be found at dialoguejournal.com slash topic pages, all one word, or navigate there from our homepage. You'll find amazing resources and research on tons of issues. And thank you for your sustaining support. This month, we're looking at the history of scholarship on the Book of Mormon. There was so much content on this that I had to break it up into two episodes. Part one in the last episode covered from the founding of Dialogue until the 1990s, a key moment of real fissure in Book of Mormon scholarship, while part two this month goes over the 2000s to the present. Thanks to everyone for following along on this history as a way of better understanding Book of Mormon scholarship. I want to alert you to one other resource that I discovered since the last episode. The Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, published by the Maxwell Institute, has their 2020 issue dedicated to the history of Book of Mormon scholarship. It's worth checking out. We concluded the last episode in the midst of the Book of Mormon Wars. Scholarship had become more partisan, more factionalized, and more aggressive from some quarters. Dialogue had always been open to a variety of perspectives, but various factors had pushed Book of Mormon scholarship into different venues, with more apologetic approaches finding a home in farms, a well-funded effort that once dominated the market, and a more naturalistic approach showing up in signature books and some in dialogue. The year 2000 is a good place to start a new chapter. At the 2000 Sunstone Symposium, Brent Lee Metcalf, one of the main characters of the naturalistic approach, described the contemporary moment surrounding the Book of Mormon as, quote, a Galileo event. What he meant is that the evidence that had been presented against the historicity of the Book of Mormon was so compelling that the church would have to change its paradigm, much like Galileo challenged the geocentric model of the universe. Metcalf was overly optimistic, perhaps, that the Book of Mormon wars would have a significant impact on the church itself, but the issue certainly hasn't been resolved in the church more than 20 years later. Act 1. The Book of Mormon Wars Continued In the year 2000, we're still in the midst of the Book of Mormon Wars. These were about setting the context, whether ancient or modern, for understanding the Book of Mormon itself. Farms was still coming off of its height, but still quite active, and things were not calming down. First up in this new century is Douglas Salmon, Parallelomania and the Study of Latter-day Scripture, Confirmation, Coincidence, or the Collective Unconscious. This remains an important article. It goes right to the heart of things, how to explain the apparent similarities between ancient Near Eastern texts, cultures, and so on. 
This was a trend that we've talked about, really pioneered by Hugh Nibley, whose work is discussed a lot in this article, and continued by Farms, the Foundation of Ancient Research and Mormon Studies. The author, Salmon, makes the case that a rather careful methodological comparison is not actually happening here, but rather that this approach exhibits parallelomania. This means that they were overemphasizing similarities and deriving significance from that supposed similarity. Further, he argues that the parallels rely on extreme selectivity, misrepresentation, and more. He goes after a number of the most important examples up until that point. It remains one of the most significant challenges to Nibley's method up until then. It also contextualizes this approach in broader scholarship on the study of religion, showing connections in method to Eliade, Jung, and others. It's a fascinating article. While this one was respectful, if hard-hitting, and a challenge to the paradigm, not all of the articles coming out of this time period took that tone. Robert Patterson's article, Hebraicisms, Chiasmus, and Other Internal Evidence for Ancient Authorship in Green Eggs and Ham. Wow, this was a satirical take on the proofs of antiquity that had become commonplace in apologetic scholarship. When Jack Welch made the argument for chiasmus as an ancient Hebrew literary form in the Book of Mormon just a few decades before, it had remained at the center of the defense of ancient origins for the book. But over the ensuing decades, a number of challenges had arisen, including the fact that chiasmus was discovered in a variety of different modern texts as well. I am Sam. Sam I am. Voila, chiasmus. Patterson writes, Upon an initial and cursory reading, the book appears to be a simple morality play. Zealous purveyor of unusual gustatory selection hawks his wares to an everyman whose initial biases preclude his acceptance of the unfamiliar. By the end of the story, the everyman has overcome his baseless prejudices and rejoices in his newfound knowledge. The book made perfect bedtime reading for generations of youth known as the baby boomers, Deeper analysis, however, reveals that the book has complex subjects comprehensible only when the factual nature of its real authorship is known. Indeed, there is overwhelming evidence that the manuscript did not originate with Geisel, who fallaciously claimed credit for an archaic work that he or someone else surreptitiously translated from an ancient language into modern English. The tone continues like this, mimicking the seriousness of Book of Mormon literary devices and ancient Israelite themes, word print studies, and so on. It didn't add much to calming things down. In 2002, Earl Wonderly contributed his Critique of a Limited Geography for the Book of Mormon Events. Like the others, this goes after the farms model, this time the main thesis of John L. Sorensen. Sorensen had located the Book of Mormon Events in a very specific context in Central America, identifying certain features like the narrow neck of land. It also suggests that not all Native Americans are descended from Lehi, rather, but a specific subset of people in this one small area. Wonderly says that lots of people had challenged this hypothesis on external empirical evidence, but Wonderly's article instead argues against the limited geography model on internal evidence of what the Book of Mormon says. 
This provides a good overview of the major arguments and scholarship and then critiques the limited geography model, suggesting that the hemispheric model best still fits the internal narrative of the Book of Mormon. In the same issue, Bob Reese wrote Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, and the American Renaissance. Reese was the former editor of Dialogue, but was also a literature professor. He summarizes the debates over the Book of Mormon. Both groups, he says, find their own parallels. I've been labeled, he says, both an apologist and a naturalistic critic. I have watched the exchange with interest. He tries to offer a different way here. It's a good introduction to a lot of the scholarship up until that point, much that we haven't discussed. Like Osler and others, Reese was looking for a middle ground. Quote, the Book of Mormon may be genuinely both an ancient and modern text. There were real Nephites, but Joseph Smith translated the text into his 19th century mind. It's in 2002 that one of the most important studies of the Book of Mormon was published, not a dialogue. Terrell Gibbons' book, By the Hand of Mormon, came out from Oxford University Press. It was a bit of a sensation, reviewed in the New York Review of Books, and really launched his career. This book summarized many of the debates, but sided more with the apologists. It's another great text that captures the era's assessment of the important Book of Mormon scholarship and the ongoing debates about its meaning. So after more than a decade of harsh attacks from apologists, Sometimes we saw some pushback that was in bad taste, at least to me. But for the most part, we're seeing some solid contributions in the beginning of the 20th century that were attempting to clarify the issues, establish clear methodological standards, and offer compromised third-way approaches. And the field was professionalizing with more sophisticated analysis and rhetoric. Hello, this is Andrew Hall, host of the Dialogue Book Report. Each episode features brilliant minds from the world of Mormon publishing. In our last episode, I sat down with music scholars Michael Hicks and Jake Johnson to discuss their recent work on Mormon music and theater. In the latest episode, I sit down with Terrell Givens to discuss the life and legacy of Eugene England. I'm also joined by my new co-host, Christina Rossetti, our nonfiction book editor at Dialogue. Subscribe to the Dialogue Journal podcast wherever you like to listen. And check out all of our past episodes by going to dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue Podcast Network. Act 2. The 19th Century Hypothesis Continues. By this time, the Book of Mormon Wars were in their second generation and had come to occupy significant scholarly attention. That also meant that publication venues were seriously polarized, as we've mentioned, farms on the one hand, signature books on the other, and to a lesser extent, dialogue. It wasn't, of course, by choice. I'm confident that dialogue was and is committed to its original vision of hosting diverse voices, but it just shows how the scholarly landscape had shaken out in those years. In this second act, There are lots of really important articles that advance the 19th century context for understanding all or part of the Book of Mormon.
In 2003, we see several articles on the Book of Mormon in the winter issue. Clay Chandler, Scrying for the Lord, Magic, Mysticism, and the Origins of the Book of Mormon, made another pass at the magical culture of Joseph Smith's early career. Since the 1980 Hoffman forgeries and Michael Quinn's Mormonism in the Magic Worldview and others, folk magic was a hot topic in early Mormonism. This paper looks at three phases of the Book of Mormon production, the discovery of the plates, the practices of mysticism that were part of the translation experience, and Joseph Smith's transformation from translator to prophet. He looks at the role of magic in all three phases, from seer stones and buried treasure to mystical states to a variety of specific episodes that he says make sense as magical practices. That same issue, we see Robert Price, Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon. By this point, the arguments are all pretty straightforward and the camps are solid. Price argues that Joseph Smith is the author of the Book of Mormon. He rejects the idea that someone outside of Mormonism could have been the author or that it was a pastiche of other early American works. The main reason is because the Book of Mormon itself, and most importantly, Joseph Smith himself, is a significant character in the Book of Mormon that the book talks about Joseph Smith specifically, even referring to him by name, has to be considered when evaluating authorship. The last article from this 2003 issue is Thomas Murphy, Simply Implausible, DNA and a Mesoamerican Setting for the Book of Mormon. This marks the first time that the DNA issue had really come to the pages of dialogue. Murphy was a key player in this debate. This article is a response to some farms and FAIR criticism, FAIR, the Foundation of Apologetic and Information and Research, criticisms of an earlier book chapter published by Murphy, where he answers a number of the objections to his arguments. They all agreed on what the evidence was, that it didn't support any traditional understanding of the Book of Mormon, that Native Americans are not descended from ancient Israelites. The issue is what that meant. Apologists argued that the limited geography model meant that the DNA wouldn't really be detectable. Others argued that it meant that the Book of Mormon just wasn't a historical record. This essay is organized around the key arguments and walks through the evidence, so it's a good place to start to orient yourself on the debate. There is some back and forth in the letters to the editor if you want to follow up on the discussion about it in subsequent issues. Moving ahead to 2005, we see another new contribution. John Williams, A Marvelous Work and a Possession, Book of Mormon Historicity as Post-Colonialism. I think this remains an important paper because it really brings in race and politics into Book of Mormon scholarship, not in terms of hashing out the justice or meaning of the curses, but of how the narrative and its interpretation incorporate or take possession of certain peoples for its own purposes. He compares the Book of Mormon to 13th century book, The Travels of Marco Polo. He isn't drawing crude parallels about influences or origins. Indeed, he's explicitly discussing the hazards of parallelomania that Douglas Salmon had put forward. Instead, Williams wants to reframe this whole question at a meta level to talk about how the Book of Mormon and its coming forth are colonizing events, taking possession of a people in the narrative. And he calls the contemporary analysis that limits the authority and totalizing claims of the Book of Mormon about who the Lamanites are, whether from apologists or naturalists, decolonization. 
The question of the identity of the Lamanites is at the heart of this colonizing or decolonizing process. Other 19th century approaches continued to be put forward, including Clyde Ford, Lehigh on the Great Issues, Book of Mormon Theology in Early 19th Century Perspective. Really, Ford isn't making a definitive argument about historicity, only that the theological arguments in the Book of Mormon seemed, quote, designed to be read and understood by its early 19th century audience. This article is then an effort to locate more precisely the theological argument that it was engaged in by mapping the different schools from Calvinism to Arminianism to Methodism to Universalism and more. He looks at some of the major theological rivalries of the day and where the Book of Mormon lands on them. He argues that the Book of Mormon doesn't consistently side with one school, but is an eclectic mix of various theological positions of the day. The last article in that 2005 issue that I want to discuss is another one about chiasmus. Earl Wonderly has a follow-up, Critique of Alma 36 as an Extended Chiasm. This article looks at one of the most famous and claimed to be structurally elegant example in the Book of Mormon of this literary form, first noticed by Jack Welch. In Alma 36, Alma the Younger recounts his conversion from the lowest lows to the highest highs. But Wonderly challenges the evidence here, saying that no such chiasm was intended. There are a number of asymmetries, or the pairs are linked in weak ways. If there is an extended chiasmus in the Book of Mormon, rather than a small examples of a few verses, this chapter doesn't fit. A year later, father and son, Boyd and Farrell Edwards, responded to this article. They make an argument about statistical probabilities to note that the structural parallels are not an accident. Further, the existence of several other chiasms, large and small, suggests that intentionality cannot be dismissed here. So in this period, we really have seen a slew of important articles that continue to approach the historicity of the Book of Mormon. These included the advent of DNA studies, literary and theological analysis, authorship, and more. But it also includes genuine back and forth, whether in the letters to the editor responding to these articles or in response articles that show a different perspective, such as the debate over chiasmus. Welcome to Bristlecombe Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside where we discuss faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. The central question we ask each other, as well as poets, artists, activists, and other guests around our virtual fireside, is what does it mean to belong to the earth? So if you've ever wondered how to reground your faith and spiritual practice in the stuff of the earth, this is the podcast for you. Catch up on previous seasons by subscribing to Bristlecone Firesides on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. From the Aspen Mountains, Juniper Forests, Red Rock Deserts, and Salty Lakes of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to find yourself in the family of the earth. Act 3. 
post-apologetics. A new era was dawning. Whether fatigue or just creativity, in the 2010s, we started to see a variety of new approaches. Some were really taking Book of Mormon scholarship in new directions entirely, as we'll see. Others were continuing to advance historical analysis. Peter Huff's 2010 article, A Gentile Recommends the Book of Mormon, was just such a new kind of article. This is a matter of interfaith dialogue. The Book of Mormon has often attracted admirers from outside the faith. Huff puts it in the category of, quote, world-class scripture. He also has an interesting line, quote, in the academic world, specialization in Mormon studies can wreck a promising career. That was just in 2010, and while there still are some risks, it doesn't seem to be the case anymore, at least not as dramatically as he puts it. But he talks about the general prejudice against the Book of Mormon in the scholarly world. He notes, quote, the Book of Mormon is an extraordinary piece of literature. So we see again the resurgence of literary approaches to the Book of Mormon that assess its literary quality quite positively. Twain's claim that the book was chloroform in print was funny, but wrong, according to Huff. The truth is that this was a bit of a high point for the Book of Mormon. Terrell Givens followed up his best-selling book with a brief introduction to the Book of Mormon. Paul Gutjar published The Book of Mormon, A Biography. Grant Hardy published Understanding the Book of Mormon, A Reader's Guide. Rick Turley and William Slaughter published How We Got the Book of Mormon. Royal Skousen was producing a long-awaited critical edition of the Book of Mormon. Oxford University Press and others were all in. And it wasn't just LDS scholars, but non-LDS ones as well. The dawn had broken on a new generation of scholars that were now dictating the narrative, not just the apologists and the naturalists. A 2012 article from Jacob Bender further captures this turn. For all things must fail, a post-structural approach to the Book of Mormon. Bender brings Derrida to bear on the Book of Mormon. I argue, he says, that the Book of Mormon's text participates in its own self-deconstruction, systematically undermining the reader's confidence in the text while also engaging in what Derrida termed free play with words. For people into literary and interpretive theory, this is a great read. It really explores the theme of failures of language in the Book of Mormon. The article is a great example not only of the post-apologetics literary approach, but of the sophistication that Book of Mormon studies was beginning to show. In 2014, Clyde Ford returns to the journal again with an important follow-up to his earlier article. In The Book of Mormon, the early 19th century debates over universalism and the development of the novel Mormon doctrine of ultimate rewards and punishments, Ford sets the Book of Mormon in the context of debates over universal salvation that were a big part of the scene in Joseph Smith's day. Further, he locates these teachings in the context of Smith's own development of teachings on universal salvation. It's an excellent study of the key issues in LDS doctrines, as well as the Book of Mormon's theology. That same year, Brian Warnick, Benjamin Johnson, and Sanghyun Kim published Hospitality in the Book of Mormon. This article compares the theme of hospitality practices in the Bible and other ancient literature to the Book of Mormon. It looks at the stories of Zoram, 
Alma and Amulek, Ammon and Lamoni, and various homilies in the Book of Mormon that contain elements of hospitality culture and concern. For people who are familiar with studies of hospitality culture, this is a super helpful article. They conclude, quote, Hospitality in the Book of Mormon is not just a host increasing his honor by being generous to a potential enemy under his roof. It is also an opportunity to act as God acts toward others, with kindness and mercy, offering up one's home as a place of safety and protection. It's a great discussion of another important theological theme. In 2014, again, Roger Terry also publishes Archaic Pronouns and Verbs in the Book of Mormon, What Inconsistent Usage Tells Us About Translation Theories. You'll recall that translation theories had been a big deal for a long time. Was the Book of Mormon a word-for-word translation, read from the seer stone or the Urim and Thummim? This had been a popular theory and was dominant in conservative treatments, which had put forward various proofs for this description. Or was Joseph Smith responsible for some of the theological and even narrative content of the book? Blake Osler and others had pioneered this approach of a loose translation to explain the anachronisms and other features. These were perhaps revelations, they suggested, but somehow Joseph Smith in his own context explained historical and theological elements of the text. Roger Terry looks at something else, the grammar of the Book of Mormon. There are lots of yees when it should be a thou and so on. He puts forward what he calls a new translation theory. It's not one that, to my knowledge, has gained wide acceptance. And in the last few years alone, several major studies of Joseph Smith's translation method have appeared. But it's nevertheless an interesting proposal to solve some problems that earlier theories hadn't considered. So by the beginning of the 2010s, we were seeing a whole new breadth to Book of Mormon scholarship in the pages of Dialogue and beyond. Historicity wasn't the only issue, but new studies of theological themes like universalism or hospitality appeared. We had grammatical studies, literary appreciation, and new post-structuralist approaches that I think mark this as a clearly post-apologetic turn. studies. In this final section, I want to summarize a few of the new directions that we've seen in Book of Mormon scholarship in the last five or six years, at least at the time of this recording. The old questions have not been completely settled, and I expect we will continue to litigate these for a long time. But there are new approaches to these questions, and more and more entirely new questions as well. I want to start out with a sermon by Jared Hickman, Learning to Read with the Book of Mormon. We haven't covered sermons here in this podcast, though there are many excellent ones on the Book of Mormon. But this is one exception that I need to make. Jared Hickman published in 2014 one of the most consequential, if not the most consequential article on The Book of Mormon as Amerindian Apocalypse in the journal American Literature. This article challenged the traditional reading of racism in the Book of Mormon, showing how it deconstructs itself. 
this approach blew people away and remained hugely influential for rereading the Book of Mormon. This sermon is really a deep analysis of reading itself. It's gorgeous from one of the great scholars of our day. In 2017, another amazing scholar of American religion, Colleen McDaniel, makes a key contribution. Mexicans, Tourism, and the Book of Mormon Geography. McDaniel brings a material culture lens to tourism as an industry that sprung up from the apologetic approaches to the Book of Mormon. How has the Book of Mormon shaped the real world and people's lived experiences? This article is so innovative. It tells a whole new story of how the Book of Mormon geography got debated from the early 20th century up until today. It's a hugely important history of this particular sub-question in Book of Mormon studies. You'll also meet some key figures in Mexico who are part of this industry. I love this article and highly recommend it. We see a collection of important articles in the summer 2019 issue that all deal with the Book of Mormon, the first issue in a long time to publish so many articles on the Book of Mormon at once. First up is Brian Hales, Automatic Writing and the Book of Mormon, an update. Here, Hales examines one of the newer theories for the production of the Book of Mormon among naturalists, who argued that Smith wrote while in a trance or automatically. There are several examples of this kind of unconscious writing, and Hales examines these as a comparison. Most important here is a 1915 book written with a medium called The Sorry Tale. There are others as well, but Hales argues that there are too many dissimilarities to classify the book in this way. Next up is Ryan Thomas, The Gold Plates and Ancient Metal Epigraphy. This article is the definitive study of writing on metal plates in antiquity. It looks at all the examples. This is part of a larger trend to study the question of the gold plates. Richard Bushman, Ann Taves, and others have puzzled over the gold plates. What Ryan Thomas does in is, is establishing whether or not there were any ancient precedents for something like the brass plates or the gold plates, metal codices of the kind described in the book. The descriptions in the Book of Mormon diverge from all known examples. An online-only appendix goes into even more detail. In the next article, Larry Morris's Empirical Witnesses of the Gold Plates offers more discussion of the various witnesses to the gold plates among Joseph Smith's contemporaries. Rebecca Riesler wrote, Plain and precious things lost, the small plates of Nephi, as the last contribution to that special 2019 issue. This is a study of the role that the small plates of Nephi play in the narrative of the Book of Mormon itself. It was called a plain and precious book. This is actually a really big issue in apologetic and naturalistic approaches. Quinn Brewster's article from 1996 offers some discussion of this. Riesler offers another perspective that, quote, sometime in the generations before Alma, the small plates of Nephi and the teaching thereon are lost or obscured from view. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's worth mentioning that Becky is one of the only women who has published on the Book of Mormon in dialogue, Colleen McDaniel being the exception just a few years before her. Recent years have seen a big influx of women scholars into this subfield, but not as many have been publishing in dialogue, and I hope that we see that change. 
Speaking of this, I want to highlight the joint sermon in this issue by Fatima Sala and Margaret Olson Hemming, wrestling with the racism of the Book of Mormon. Again, we haven't covered sermons, but this one is also outstanding. These two are the authors of a really important book, The Book of Mormon for the Least of These. Volume 1 came out a few years ago, and they're finishing up Volume 2 now. It takes a social justice approach to the Book of Mormon, and this sermon is a really beautiful discussion of the problem of race here. The most recent article that we've published is by William Davis. Davis's 2020 book, Visions of a Seer Stone, was a finalist for the American Academy of Religion Book Awards. It's a huge deal. Anyway, his winter 2020 article is called The Limits of Naturalistic Criteria for the Book of Mormon, Comparing Joseph Smith and Andrew Jackson Davis. This takes his book's research in a new direction. Here, he looks at the claims that Joseph Smith could not have produced the Book of Mormon and brings new data to this long-standing question. He looks specifically at Andrew Jackson Davis, an American seer who wrote the book The Principles of Nature in 1847 while in a trance. In this comparison, he writes, we find another complex text produced by a speaker with limited formal education and training created under similar conditions and circumstances, and a work that stands as its young creator's greatest masterpiece, even though the text was created at the dawn of the speaker's career. This is sure to make a long-standing contribution to the discussion. Okay, so we conclude the most recent period with a bit of analysis. There is so much more to say about the Book of Mormon. We're still seeing some of the classic questions on historicity come up. But even here, there is so much more innovation about ancient and modern cultures, new theories of automatic writing that are being debated, and more. But we are also seeing new approaches altogether, new areas of research on the gold plates, on the structure of the Book of Mormon, and new innovations on the reception of the book, including tourism, which show a lot of promise. don't do this, but I just want to let you all in on the fact that two new articles on the Book of Mormon are going to be dropping soon, one in fall and another in winter 2021. Michael McKay, a brilliant scholar in BYU's Religious Education Department, has a fascinating article on Joseph Smith's translation methods. This article breaks new ground theoretically and some amazing new observations about the early documents that Smith was working with. No spoilers, but it is so good. The Winter 2021 issue has a great article by Grant Adamson, Joseph Smith, Thomas Paine, and Matthew 27. This article pursues a really interesting hypothesis that the Book of Mormon is responding directly to skeptics of the Bible, like Thomas Paine, by proposing solutions to the problems that they had raised about specific passages. This one looks at controversies over Matthew's unique discussion of events surrounding Jesus's resurrection. Keep an eye out for this one as well.
has been such a fun episode to do, and there is definitely more to come. Thank you for taking this journey with me and for taking the journey through Dialogue Journal and for all of your support. If you want to subscribe or donate to Dialogue, you can do so at dialoguejournal.com slash subscribe. This episode was written by me with editing and music by Daniel Foster Smith. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. Our social media manager is Adam McLean. The Dialogue Journal podcast is produced by the Dialogue Foundation, a registered 501c3, with support from Mary Thebes. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. And we've been growing like wildfire with tons of new shows like Fireside with Blair Hodges, At Last She Said It, Bristlecone Firesides, Strangers No More, Funeral Potatoes at the Singles Ward, and more. Check out all the shows at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Thank you.